and this is AFL Obsessed. How are you? I can't believe I'm saying this, but welcome to season two of the pod. And thanks for waiting. I took an unexpected break last month from recording. Andrew and I were experiencing a noise disturbance issue all month, and we've also had some intermittent Wi-Fi issues. So the last couple of places weren't great for recording. And I'm trying to have an extra layer of empathy because of the pandemic and everyone is kind of cooped up. But it's definitely challenging working with that and having the footy blues on top of it after the season ended. But I've been keeping you all in my heart. I love knowing that you're always there for me. Your messages are so great. And some things might have kept me from recording, but as soon as I had the window, I'm back and you'll be hearing from me weekly. Everything else is good. Andrew and I aren't sick. And we're closing in on what has been the most disruptive year of uncertainty for everyone. It's been an unusual and stressful whirlwind for so many, but there have been some highlights too at the same time. But mainly, as so much has happened in the last few weeks, I don't even know where to begin. Since we've hung out, the UK formally went into lockdown and has since rolled out of it, only to go back into lockdown. My international footy membership got renewed automatically on November 29th, so up the dons in 2021. And the draft happened, which we'll talk more about later. And Victoria has reached 50 days of no local cases of COVID as of December 18th. And last but not least, we have versions of a vaccine. So there's been a lot of headlines and stories in the media mix. But how are you? How are you feeling right now? Are you excited about the closeout of the month and the year? Or are you just ready like next? I mean, are the holidays helping at all? My email is aflfootyobsessed at gmail and aflobsessed on Twitter if you want to chat. So let's get to it and dive into the opening overture of my overall thoughts on the week and where we're at now in December. So California is on temporary lockdown statewide. All non-essential travel is currently suspended indefinitely. And New York schools closed completely. And everyone went to remote learning end of November, but they're beginning another partial reopening now. And Broadway has a tentative opening on July 4th just for Hamilton, which is a fitting date for that particular show. I'm really looking forward to when Broadway is back and we can just go back to seeing shows and live music concerts too. On the health side, the numbers are continually staggering here, and there's almost no signs of slowing down. In five days, at one point, we hit 1 million overall diagnosed cases of COVID here in the U.S., and now we're over 300,000 deaths nationwide with 50,000 in less than a month. So it's not great when the announcements and info surrounding the pandemic are all given with like a best and worst case scenario context, but I can only hope that you all stay safe since I empathize with everyone for wanting to see their family, especially if you haven't all year. We're coming up on a year of being in a pandemic, so Happy Hanukkah to any listeners that celebrate, and I know Christmas is just around the corner for anyone who celebrates that too. But now we're on to Act 1 with draft news, since we're now in the off season, and let's talk the AFL draft. 
So trade period has come and gone, and there have been highlights, but for me personally, I'm much more invested in the draft. It's deeply intriguing to me on one hand because it's not necessarily about who the best player is or who was drafted within the lineup by best ability or best player per se. Of course, that's all subjective, but each club is looking for the best player for their team. So there might be a really great player that doesn't feel fill a need, so they kind of go higher than expected in a draft. I mean, you never know. So Nat Fife was number 20 as a pick, and Lockie Neal, who we've talked about, his full transformation previously, was number 58 in the draft. But on the flip side, those are the intricacies and complexities that I really love diving into since you know I'm interested in the mechanics of everything and in the breakdown of how it all works in the AFL. But this particular draft was especially interesting because there's more of a gamble, I feel, on these players as a whole from the outset because they didn't all have a season. It's important to note that the Sandful and the Waffle have played on, so that's another added layer of interest, I feel, because they have had their seasons where the participants in the draft have been playing against fully grown men, while I feel like the Vic kids are playing against other school kids, but they didn't get to this year. And having that experience is invaluable for the age group, so I think we all kind of get a closer view of how they might develop in the draft just because we've been able to see a little bit more real, like R-E-E-L time from those players. But the majority of the top picks, to me, look like key position players. So there seems to be, again, a lot of groupthink. I know we've talked about this general consensus that key position players, meaning the key forwards and key defenders, because they're more scarce, I mean, good ones are hard to find, I feel like they go higher in the draft pick because you can build a team around them for, you know, 10 years. And it's a little easier to trade for midfielders and other roles like later on in the season or at other times. So for me, it's kind of, I really compare it to the NFL quarterback draft. Like it seems the quarterbacks are most desired and they typically go first in the draft or kind of earlier in the picks. And sometimes I think it's just easier to bet on a less expensive like rookie quarterback, especially with salary cap issues, but that's a whole nother conversation. But how I personally view it, this year I was much more invested because we had consecutive successive picks and in the single digit grouping, which is much more exciting. And technically, there were just two groupings in the draft for me, really. The players that will definitely go before we get to our picks and the group of players that we might actually get because there were definitely, I think we were too far down the pecking order to kind of expect some of, you know, the top seven, etc. players to kind of just slip to us. But the number one draft pick, Jamara Ugelhagen, I feel like we all know his name now. So the Western Bulldogs had an academy player, and that was Jamara, that they planned to draft. So even though Adelaide had the number one overall pick because they got the wooden spoon and they could have gone with any other player, they still bidded on him, which designated him as the number one draft pick for this year. And it's interesting that Adelaide technically had the first pick, but they didn't get the player or the pick or like any of the marketing benefits from that. So that's something that I found really interesting. And the best way that I can describe an academy is that it's kind of like a zone or a zoning system where clubs get preferential access to kids within their zone. 
And I think the idea is that the clubs will then invest in those zones to develop the talent. So I think this is changing in future, but that's my understanding. I hope that wasn't too confusing. But bottom line is I'm happy with our draftees and I'm happy with how it all went down. And it was really interesting to see too, because it was all virtual, how the ceremony went and it was really exciting to see everyone kind of get called because I do watch the NBA draft here and sometimes I'll watch the NFL draft. But are you happy with your team's draft picks? I know there's a lot of chat about who won the draft, but to me, we won't really know until we see everyone next year, I feel. But I am curious about your excitement level and how far of a deep dive you may do, who you're most excited to see develop, and kind of just following and watching along all of the picks and the draftees' development over time. I love following their journeys. So it's going to be really exciting to see this season and going forward. Okay, so it's intermission. So quickly during this time, let's just cut away to other sports. I've been watching a bit of college basketball and football since footy season ended, and the NBA has announced their 75th season. They've started preseason already, but the season will start on December 22nd. And due to the pandemic, the regular season has been reduced to just 72 games. And college football is coming to an end. So the Big Ten Championship is finishing up this weekend and the other conferences will be finishing shortly. So now we're on to Act 2 where I do a deep dive into a footy club and discussion or an element of footy history. So we're back to footy school, and previously in the off-season, we talked about Melbourne, Geelong, Carlton, North Melbourne, Essendon, St. Kilda, Sydney, and the Western Bulldogs. So in keeping with AFL history and the timeline of AFL clubs, I'd like to introduce Richmond with this familiar theme song. love hearing that. So Richmond was established in 1885 and their colors are yellow and black. 
And they are known for having a great theme song. Truthfully, as a music person, if I would have chosen a team based on theme song alone, I definitely would have been leaning towards the Tigers. And they're also known for sacking coaches in their history. They are one of the traditional big four Melbourne clubs with their home games at the G and their training ground, the Punt Road Oval, is literally just outside the G. They are the current defending premiers. So right now it's Tiger time all the time and for having the only triple Norm Smith medalist. And we've talked about that before, but props to Dusty. This is always an appreciation pod for him. So a little history, Richmond joined the VFL, which became the AFL, in 1908, which was 11 years after the league started. So they were not an original or founding club. They came in shortly after it started. And I feel like that's really interesting because you always think of them as just one of the big originals. But they have since won 13 premierships, most recently this year. And the club enjoyed its most successful era in the 1960s to 1980, where they won five flags. And they've since won three of the last four. So we are currently in a Richmond dynasty. The club had a lot of internal division, but they did survive and persevere through World War I and World War II. And I know that's same for all of the other clubs who were around at that time. But fast forward to when the recession hit them hard, starting in the late 80s. So during circumstances of financial difficulties, similar to other clubs in the 80s to the mid 90s, which we've discussed previously, the recession also hit Richmond hard. And in 1989, their debt actually stood at 1.7 million, which is a lot for that time period. And committee man Gary Krause's $400,000 loan is the only reason why the club stayed afloat at that time. So at the end of 1989, at the annual meeting, President Neville Crow made public basically the scale of the debt, shocking the coach at the time and surprising even Brendan Gale, who was then a first-year player but is now Richmond's chief executive. So essentially, they put it all out there and basically put the club on death row. And I think it's shocking for one of the big clubs to be in that dire of a financial difficulty or to even imagine that now, really. And in August 1990, Richmond launched a campaign called Save Our Skins, and they gave themselves 10 weeks to raise $1 million. So everyone from the president down, including the coach and the players, were rattling tins and kind of sizzling sausages for the cause. Because the financial situation was so grim and the football club was in crisis, the former Players Committee actually decided to donate their entire funds that they had in their bank account at the time to help the club, and that was a total of 25000 But the biggest single donation was Craig Kimberly's $10,000 gift. And Kimberly was president of South Melbourne at the time, and we've talked about South Melbourne's transition and move to become the Sydney Swans in the It's in the Bloods episode. So I personally thought that was a really poignant move for an executive of another club. I think having gone through hardships, everybody knows like what it's like to lose their club or to have it move. So by October 1990, literally a month later, the club was saved. And in 2008, the Save Our Skins campaign was named as the defining moment in Richmond's first 100 years. Most notably and recently, Peggy O'Neill was appointed as the AFL's first female president, but at Richmond in 2013. You guys know my American Idol and our first ever spotlight segment back in my Australian Dreams episode. (laughs) 
I think that was episode six. And the club also hosts the Corin Gamagee Institute at Punt Road, the KGI Institute, which is an innovative leadership and well-being program for Indigenous boys and girls. And they've been doing that since 2008. And in 2018, Richmond became the first sports club to present at the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. So I thought that was really interesting. And this year, they established their AFLW team and had their first season. And we've also talked about Brendan Gill's prophetic projection. On a side note, I thought it was completely hilarious that in 2001, someone legit had chicken poo delivered to the Richmond headquarters because they were upset about their club's performance and dumped it on the front door. And that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Someone literally crapping on their club. I don't think that's happened here even honestly. So that was a hilarious sidebar, just equally dramatic and upsetting on so many levels. As for notable players, Ian Stewart, who you'll remember from St. Kilda, he also played for Richmond, the great Kevin Bartlett with his 403 games, his 778 goals, he was a five-time premiership player and five-time best and fairest, with the third most games in the AFL, so that's absolutely legendary, and also he has a statue outside the MCG. And Bryce Hart, who is regarded as one of the greatest center half forwards to ever play Australian rules football. Jack Dyer, who was nicknamed Captain Blood. Kevin Sheedy, our Lord and Savior. Just kidding. And Francis Burke, who played 300 games and five premierships. And I thought it was really interesting, specifically for Francis Burke, He is a Richmond great, but he's also an example of a player pushing through pain barriers and playing through the pain. So he played a game with a broken leg against Hawthorne in 1971, and he only came off when the full extent of his injury was known, but he did miss the next nine games. As for notable coaches, Tom Hafey, Frank Checker-Hughes, Dimma, with a decade-plus shout-out to him and Clarkson holding it down, honestly, as one club coaches, which is something that you don't see very much. A lot of coaches bounce around, so shout-out for their own personal eras. The only others I can really think of are Shady, Malthouse, and Lee Matthews, honestly. As for my favorite tired player, Alex Rance, no surprise here for all of you who listen, And Richo, too. I appreciate getting to see him so much, and honestly, I always look forward to his commentary when I see him on the screen. As for my fave current player, definitely Dusty, and I know I've said this before, but Toby Nankervis. So the AFLW is starting on January 28th, a week before they typically start, and they're doing a single ladder for the nine-game season, and tickets will be $10 for the first time. So there you have it. My email is aflfootyobsessed at gmail and aflobsessed on Twitter. If you want to chat about what you're up to now that the year is ending and how you're feeling about the draft and also about next season, 
And now it's the after show where I've decided to shake it up and do something different this time around because it's December, which is typically a time where I reflect on the year and kind of mentally prep for the next one. So Andrew and I started working remotely a few months ago. And I think with a pandemic, I really feel like we've gained a greater perspective having to adapt and spend our time differently than we imagined and planned. I think something like this does make you reprioritize your life and you really learn quickly, I think with clarity too, what's really important from day to day. And it's also really important for all of us to not beat yourself up if things don't go as planned. I think we have to change and lean into whatever life is throwing at you. (laughs) I am extremely grateful to have had this show and all of you. It has truly been the thing that has kept me sane all year. And getting to communicate with all of you and connect with you has honestly kept me going. I am so thankful for all of you. The show wouldn't exist or be anything without you listening and sharing. So I really appreciate all of the connections I've made with all of you. And I'm so thankful just to say that we've reached 10,000 downloads worldwide across all platforms last Tuesday. So it's definitely been encouraging me to continue to do this. So thank you so much and happy holidays to all of you. I will have a spotlight segment for you next time, but this time it really feel like the spotlight segment was on all of you. So that's it for me. Thanks for listening and hanging around for the show. Stay safe and healthy. Check on your friends and neighbors. We'll get through this like we have with footy. I'm virtually hugging you and we'll talk footy soon.